You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I think we might see it change kind of the landscape of how exams are given and how we do that part of education. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben examines an FTC memo addressing potential Facebook antitrust claims. I look at an Ohio law that could make videotaping the police a crime. And later in the show, my conversation with Lauren Daming from Greensfelder, Hemker & Gale on privacy issues, litigation, and best practices concerning universities' use of remote proctoring platforms for exams. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, we got some good stories this week. But before we jump into all that, uh, it wouldn't be the caveat podcast if we didn't have a follow-up on the story about the Baltimore spy plane. An epitaph, if you will. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So we'll just do some quick follow-up here, put a button on this one. What's the latest? So we got a decision from the full Fourth Circuit uh, U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, the Federal Circuit here in the Mid-Atlantic, ruling against the city of Baltimore and its use of that spy plane. It was actually an 8-7 decision, so closer hmm. than I would have expected. So it, it made permanent an injunction against the program. Hmm. It's sort of moot because the new mayor elected in Baltimore City last year uh, was against the program. It's been discontinued, defunded. It is now defunct. Uh, but the court not only argued that it was likely unconstitutional under the Fourth Amendment to have the spy plane taking real-time photos, but also that any information that was gleaned while that spy plane was operative – uh, and it was for much of uh, 2020. Those are, are probably not going to be admissible in criminal cases. Hmm. So anything that's gleaned from that surveillance is going to be fruit of the poisonous tree and probably won't be allowed to be introduced at trial. The decision didn't say that explicitly, uh, but it made clear that this is a very intrusive search. It violates a lot of Fourth Amendment principles. While defense attorneys and prosecutors will argue about this in court, It's unlikely that a conviction could be sustained if the only evidence available came from that uh, overhead aerial surveillance. And I'll note one thing that's that's interesting here is, 
Usually it takes a long time from when a new surveillance program is introduced to when the legal system weighs in. This is kind of an exception to that. Hmm. The case moved rather quickly, and this was sort of a test case, the use of the aerial surveillance method in Baltimore City. And I think this will dissuade other municipalities, even during this time of, of heightened violent crime, from using this technology if you know you have a prominent appeals court saying, that it's uh, an unconstitutional search under the Fourth Amendment. All right. So the eye in the sky DVR has been unplugged for now. <laughs> yes. For those of you in Baltimore City, uh, if you are still hearing a buzzing sound, check with your doctor because <laughs> the plane's no longer there. Right, right. It's probably a police helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's move on to our stories. Ben, why don't you start things off for us? So a big blow to critics of big tech and those who want to see the big tech companies, the Facebooks, Googles of the world, uh, broken up for antitrust purposes. And that's because a district court judge in uh, Washington, D.C. dismissed two antitrust cases against Facebook. One of them was brought by the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, so that federal agency. And the other one was a suit brought by the state. About 46 attorneys general signed on to the suit alleging illegal practices, violating antitrust principles on the part of Facebook. The decision in this case is multifaceted. Part of the lawsuit is that Facebook acquiring Instagram and WhatsApp sometime in the past decade squashed competition in social networking. And then the other is uh, under Section 2 of the Sherman Act, the allegation is that Facebook corners too much of the market for social networking, therefore is a monopoly, and our judicial system has the right to break them up. The reason that this judge dismissed the cases here is that the FTC in particular didn't properly allege that Facebook had the market cornered on this type of social networking. So the FTC came in and kind of based on a guesstimate, I guess, is putting it charitably. <laughs> they said that Facebook controls about 60% of the market share for social networking. That kind of 60% estimate would have been really persuasive in a normal monopoly case, a products case. Hmm. So if one company controlled you know, 60% of the market on lawnmowers, you'd have a reasonable antitrust claim there. Mm -hmm. What's problematic here is... The FTC didn't do a good enough job defining exactly what the market is, what counts as the type of social network that Facebook is. How do we know that they're cornering that part of the market if we can't even define that market? And it's hmm. the responsibility under the law of FTC to properly define that market in order for the federal court to take up an antitrust case. So what the judge here is saying is you, you didn't do well enough on your first pleading here. Mm -hmm. You haven't properly defined that market. The 60% number is uh, of no use to us right now. You have 30 days to go back and amend your complaint and make a proper allegation. Define exactly what the market is and come up with some sort of persuasive evidence that Facebook actually does control 60% of that market. The judge said, and I, I would agree with the judge here, that's going to be very difficult for the FTC to do, not only within such a short time frame, but I think just generally. It is very nebulous what counts as a social network. And there are a lot of things that Facebook does um, that aren't, you know, strictly related to social networking. So do all of those things 
you know, news feed curation, for example, does that count as part of that definition? Because that Hmm. really is a unique service. So these are going to be really difficult questions to answer. I don't think the FTC is going to come up with an adequate explanation within the next 30 days. And frankly, I I think this is a huge win for Facebook. They argued that there really is robust competition in the social networking market. Um, They pointed to the rise of TikTok, which I think is kind of persuasive. TikTok is what the kids use these days. Right. Yeah. I mean, that isn't that's an interesting part of the argument as well that Facebook uh well, I guess I should ask you, is it an interesting part of the argument that Facebook has a particular demographic, you know, as my as my kids would say, the olds use Facebook, right? Yes. <laughs> the kids aren't using Facebook. Well, it does mean that there is a viable alternative for this type of social networking. Mm -hmm. And especially without properly defining what Facebook does, you could clearly make the case that for a given social networking post, there are a lot of opportunities to use different platforms. Right. So TikTok is a great example. If I have a video that I want to go viral, I don't have to post it on Facebook. Mm -hmm. There are videos that have gone viral on TikTok. There are pictures that have gone viral because they were originally posted on Snapchat. Mm -hmm. There are tweets that have gone viral. Right. So what service is Facebook specifically providing where it has a monopoly? I mean, it seems what the judge is saying is that they didn't properly define that service. And without properly defining that service, they can't make a determination that a monopoly exists. So I think this puts Facebook on pretty firm ground. I think people at Zuckerberg headquarters in Silicon Valley are probably very pleased with this case. I think there was a lot of hope based on the fact that, you know, we've seen members of Congress from from both political parties and a lot of legal scholars saying there might be a, a viable antitrust case against some of these big tech companies. We might be able to break them up under the Sherman Act. I think this is just a a splash. I don't want to say a splash of cold water. It's more like a splash of ice water. Hmm. It's the ice bucket challenge of (laughs) rejections of cases just because there was a lot of hope that we'd we'd finally get some antitrust enforcement. And what the judge here is saying is, you know, you're not even really close. Yeah. I've seen a couple of responses to this. And one of them was, I think, from some legislators saying that this is an indication that Congress needs to go at it here and provide better tools to go after companies like this, that in the digital age, there's the Sherman Act needs to be updated, that it, it doesn't provide the proper tools to go after these sorts of companies. I think that's absolutely right. And there is an effort underway in Congress on a bipartisan basis. Uh, there are a series of bills that have, they've already been considered in committee in the House of Representatives that try to amend portions of the Sherman Act to make them more relevant to uh, breaking up big tech companies. Hmm. The problem is it's going to be really hard to come to an agreement between the two parties on the exact parameters of of those changes. They both agree that big tech needs to be broken up. I don't think they agree on the reasons why why big tech needs to be broken up (laughs) or, or, you know, the exact legislative changes. Right, right. It reminds me of, you know, back in the days, uh, the early days of Obamacare, when you'd see people say that, you know, 70% of people are against Obamacare and half of them didn't like it because they didn't like it and half of them didn't like it because they didn't think it went far enough. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I mean, it's just really hard to get Congress to agree on anything. Right. Uh, And so are they going to, in in a you know, relatively short time period, come up with a new antitrust regime Mm -hmm. that applies to big tech companies, especially when Congress is so narrowly divided? 
I certainly have my doubts. Hmm. There are a couple of avenues of potential hope here. The state's case seems to potentially be maybe stronger than the FTC's case. The states could appeal the dismissal of that lawsuit. And, you know, the FTC, if they get some really good lawyers in a room for 30 days, maybe they can find a way to better articulate what that market is and add more specificity on why Facebook controls 60% plus of that market. Yeah, there was an article in Wired that uh, they spoke to some folks about this who were hopefully making the case that this provided a roadmap for them to do just that. Yeah, I think it does. But I think what the judge made clear is like this isn't about going back and dotting the I's and crossing the T's Mm. and, and doing some editing. That they actually fell significantly short of the type of pleading they need to allow this case to move forward. And when you have a dismissal, it doesn't just mean that you've lost the case. It means you haven't properly alleged legal wrongdoing that would allow the court to consider the case in the first place. Hmm. Maybe I'm being overly pessimistic from the point of, of somebody who cares about antitrust, but we'll see if the FTC can pull something together here. Well, we will keep an eye on that one as it plays out for sure. My story this week comes from uh, News 5 Cleveland, which is one of uh, Cleveland's local— One of your go-to websites, right? Yeah. (laughs) It came by by on my Twitter feed and and attracted my attention, as you'll see why in a moment here. And uh, it's titled, Proposed Law Making Cell Phone Video of Cops a Crime— moves forward by Ohio legislators. Now, as is often the case, the headline is a little more breathless than the reality here, but I still think it's something worth our attention. Uh, There's a proposed state law in Ohio that basically expands obstruction of justice laws. And what it does is it would include failure to follow a lawful order from police or diverting a law enforcement officer's attention those would be rolled into obstruction of justice. And so what folks are saying is that if someone's standing by videotaping uh, some, you know, police going about their business, whatever that may be, that could be, I suppose, diverting a law enforcement officer's attention. That phrase makes me raise my eyebrows because, I mean— that could be anything, yeah. right? <laughs> it is It is very subjective. So generally, one does have a First Amendment right to videotape the police in the course of their public conduct. Right. <laughs> you can't peer into their house and, and just because they're police officers and spy on you know their TV watching habits. Right. But uh, you generally do have a, a constitutional right to uh, observe them in the execution of their public duties. Yeah. There are some complications there. So... Courts have made it clear that the police have the right in the name of maintaining order and, you know, effectuating arrests, et cetera, to tell members of the public to move out of the way, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, to, back to, up. Back to up. back up and, and clear the area. Right. Now, they're technically not supposed to do that simply because somebody is videotaping. Mm-hmm. It probably does happen where they tell people to clear an area and perhaps that's done when the real purpose was to stop somebody from videotaping. But that's really hard to adjudicate in each individual circumstance. Right, right. So I think the part of this law that's not as problematic is obstruction of justice if a person keeps uh, videotaping after they've been told to disperse. I think the part of the law that is potentially problematic from a First Amendment perspective is 
the part that talks about if the police officer is being distracted. Because that is something that's kind of subjective. And yes, it it can be distracting if somebody is simply, you know, from a subjective point of view, from an officer's point of view, it probably is distracting to have somebody with their iPhone out taking a video of your conduct. But, you know, that is that objectively distracting? You know, would, would the, a reasonable police officer be distracted by that? I think courts might have a hard time coming to that conclusion. Yeah. So that might end up being a, a type of First Amendment violation because it's overbroad. So I think if this, and it seems like this law is on on track for passage, I think if this law does pass, the portion of the law that's going to be problematic is this element about the police officer being distracted by, by somebody taking a camera. And I think we'd be remiss to not talk about the context here. You know, you and I follow the trial of Officer Derek Chauvin mm-hmm. in Minneapolis. Uh, this became uh, a case of worldwide notoriety because a bystander took a video. Right. And part of Chauvin's defense in that case, which was not successful, he was convicted, is that the fact that there were members of the public taking video during the incident, that it was distracting uh, and it kept him from applying the standards of of his profession. And the court and and the jury rejected that argument. Yeah. But I think that that's really important context here is I don't think we want to get into a situation where we're overly reliant on the police saying that they were distracted as a pretext to stop people from recording police interactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's it's chilling, and uh, hopefully it'll play out quickly, and and we'll get some resolution on it. But uh, that one gives me pause for sure. Absolutely, yeah. If as expected, I this law does pass, then I'm sure you're going to see some immediate legal challenges, uh, demand for an injunction, probably from. The ACLU uh, in Ohio, right. so the usual suspects. Right? Absolutely. Um, so we'll we will uh, keep our eye on on whether that develops into a into a case. All right. Well, those are our stories for this week. We would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us or a story you'd like us to look at, you can call us. Our number is 410-618-3720. You can leave a message there, or you can send us email to caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Lauren Daming. She is from the law firm Greensfelder, Hemker & Gale. 
And we were discussing uh, these proctoring platforms that uh, professors are using for exams. I know this is uh, something up your alley as an instructor yourself. Here's my conversation with Lauren Daming. This was a technology that existed before the pandemic and when universities and schools across the country were forced to do remote learning, you know, it really created the potential for a a need to have some sort of way to curb cheating when students were taking their exams at home. There's a couple different ways that these technologies work when they're looking into how students are performing on exams at home. The first is there's a type of live monitoring that some of the softwares used where an actual human is looking at video footage of a student taking an exam and taking note of their movements, their eye movements, looking for any type of indication that the student is is cheating. And the other type of monitoring is more of an AI-based monitoring where the same type of video surveillance is being analyzed through some sort of algorithm that's picking up on the same type of eye movements, physical movements, to see if a a student is possibly cheating on an exam. And some of these softwares also have other credential identification or identity authentication measures that are used. They might ask a student to show their, their driver's license or some type of ID. They might ask the student to show photos or videos of the room where they're taking an exam so the university or the professor can assess whether the student is is cheating or might be looking at notes or a a cell phone or something during the exam. So what are the issues that we run into here when when folks are using this technology? Well, there are are quite a few. It's really, really quite a web of, of privacy issues here. One of the most notable ones is the potential for discrimination. I think we all know that AI software is kind of notoriously biased and often has trouble authenticating or, or recognizing, you know, students of color. So there's, there's you know, potential for race discrimination. But beyond that, this type of software is really, you know, it's capturing somebody's physical appearance and looking into their homes and their living situations. They might reveal a student's, you know, clothing that they're wearing that might indicate they practice a certain religion or, you know, other symbols or objects in a person's home that might indicate a religious affiliation and you know, that always introduces the potential for discrimination. You know, I think another problematic aspect is the potential for disability discrimination. These softwares and and even the live monitoring, they're looking for, you know, certain eye movements or, or physical movements that indicate cheating. And some of those that might be flagged as problematic might be movements that are associated with a student's disability that, you know, are entirely innocent. Beyond the potential for discrimination, we've seen, you know, some litigation on these issues and some of the big litigation has been under the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. That is a state statute that regulates how entities can collect and store and share biometric information about individuals. And in these cases, you know, the plaintiffs are alleging that this video monitoring is capturing images of their facial geometry and analyzing that, and that constitutes biometric information, and that the universities or the software companies are not following the requirements of that statute. Another legal issue we're seeing here are claims that this type of software and these companies are engaging in unfair and deceptive trade practices. There's been some attorney general complaints on this issue against many of the big companies, and 
The claims there kind of involve just the lack of transparency that these companies provide about how this software works, the type of data that's collected, how it's stored, who can look at it, and how does the software even identify these red flag behaviors that, you know, they're turning over to professors and saying the student is possibly cheating in this instance. I suppose on the one hand, you uh, you understand the need from the schools and from the teachers to try to prevent students from te- from uh, cheating, rather, and, and, and I think that's a legitimate challenge there. Are there any uh, systems or, or organizations that are doing this in a way that's that's recognized as being better as, as not having, you know, these sorts of issues or, or is this sort of a tension that's built into this sort of system, this sort of thing? Yeah, I think this challenge will always exist because as you said, there are real benefits to this and schools need to preserve their academic integrity of their institutions. But anytime you've got technology or video monitoring that's going into a student's home, there's going to be, you know, individual privacy interests that are that are at stake there. So I, I don't know if you can totally eliminate the concerns, but, you know, I do think since these concerns have been raised and really students have been the most vocal with their open letters and, and petitions and complaints on Twitter, since that's come to the forefront, I think the companies themselves have really taken notice and have been doing a lot of the work themselves to have external audits of their software to, you know, assess potential biases, to see if they can improve it. You'll also see a lot of them have signed on to these kind of student bill of rights that talk about the rights that students have to access this information or to know the type of data that's being collected about them. And I I think these companies have provided a lot more information about their own privacy policies and security practices and their attempts to comply with all the different federal and state statutes that are at stake here. Yeah, I, I can imagine, you know, as a student, if I am taking a test and, you know, I, I want to, I don't know, gaze off in the distance or stare at the ceiling as I try to think about a problem. And if I have a system like this, you know, <laughs> triggering an alarm saying, hey, you know, eyes on your paper, that sort of thing, and that could get in the way of, of my ability to effectively take the exam. Yeah, of course. There's tons of anecdotal stories about students who have had bad experiences, who have cried during exams or, you know, become very stressed out and anxious about it. I actually have some personal experience with this. I took a, you know, strangely enough, I took a a credentialing exam for a, a privacy certification earlier this year. And I took How it ironic. On, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, uh, I took it at home on my laptop due to the pandemic. And um, there was a, a live monitoring of that exam. I had to show photos of the room I was in. I couldn't let anybody come in. I couldn't go to the bathroom. And in fact, while I was taking the exam, I was looking away from my computer and a little um, message popped up from the proctor that said, I noticed you're looking away from the computer. You need to stop. It was a little jarring to see that. Um, so I, you know, completely understand the student perspective here. I have to say also that um, just, you know, personally coming from the the generation who grew up with our teachers telling us that, uh, you know, we weren't always going to have calculators with us all the time. And 
And of course, now we're all toting around supercomputers in our pockets that have access to all of the world's information. I, I can't help wondering if this could be a catalyst for a different approach for how we come at exams, you know, that maybe this is an indicator that our exams aren't aligning with the reality of a real-world professional position after you get out of school. Right. That, that is a great point. Some of the advice that we would give people looking to use this type of software is because of the pushback, you need to consider alternatives to these types of exams. So that might be open book exams, as you said, um, that more, you know, reflects reality more closely than a, than a closed exam where someone is watching you. Yeah, so we, I think we might see it change kind of the landscape of how exams are given and how we do that part of education. You know, Illinois has, uh, as you mentioned, sort of led the way with their Biometric Privacy Act. Are there any other things on your radar in terms of policy uh, proposals that would address this specific issue? You know, I, I'm not familiar with any statutes that are in the works that are looking at this. I know that mm. one thing that does touch on this is that many states have started to include biometric information in their definitions of PII in their data breach statutes. So mm. even if if particular states, you know, don't have any statute addressing this, there there is some measure of protection for students against data breaches of this information. I guess the other thing kind of on the horizon, again, it's Illinois leading the way again, they have a particular statute in place that regulates how companies can use AI in their hiring practices. So if they're requiring applicants to submit video interviews as part of the hiring process, there's a statute in place that, you know, requires employers to get consent and provide some information about how how the AI is used in that context. So, you know, this is an issue that goes beyond education. It's in, it's in hiring, it's in professional exams and certifications, and we're probably going to see a lot more of it. And so, you know, I won't be surprised to see more regulation or, or more concerns in the future. All right, Ben, what do you think? What a cool conversation. Uh, it's such a unique topic. I don't think it's something we've ever discussed on this podcast, and mm -hmm. it's just increasingly relevant. Uh, my students in the past year have had to have these online proctored examinations. You know, I think the goals of teachers, professors, and academic institutions are certainly noble. They don't want their students to cheat. I right. get that. Right. Uh, and for years, we had a system to protect against that. There are proctors in the classroom making sure that students aren't, you know, looking over their, their peers' shoulders and copying their answers. <laughs> right. So they've tried to apply that concept to virtual education. And for all of the reasons mentioned in that interview, there are a lot of really difficult complications, especially when we're using artificial intelligence. So, you know, it's not fair to students with disabilities if there's a suspicious movement and that's flagged to a teacher or to a professor when it's something that's part of that student's disability. I mean, I think I, that's that's really concerning. Mm -hmm. We know that these are, uh, artificial systems are biased in all sorts of ways. So I think that's forced teachers and professors to perhaps rethink the, you know, examinations, whether to protect against these types of biases and to make the process more seamless when possible having open book exams. Yeah. I know I've made my exams open network and open book over the past year. 
because, you know, I'd rather not deal with the minutia of, you know, talking to online proctors and figuring out whether a student was actually cheating. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that's something that a lot of uh, teachers and professors are going to be wrestling with. How does that work out for you? I mean, is is it as a professor, is it pretty clear for you when when someone is, you know, just doing copy and paste Internet research versus synthesizing their own answers? Yes. (laughs) So uh, for any listeners who I've had as students, um, they know that I'm quite good at spotting plagiarism. Okay. (laughs) Especially when you copy and paste something not in your writing and Mm. uh, it shows up in a different font. Copy and paste that into my own Google search. Got to put a little bit of effort in, right? Yeah. You got to at least be uh, creative there. I mean, And that's not something that you're really even going to catch through an online proctor. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why I I sort of have questions about the enterprise entirely. I mean, I can understand, you know, you want to see if students are, they they have cameras looking around the room to make sure that you're not, you don't have your phone next to you looking up answers or your textbook or something like that. Right. Um, But so much cheating now could be done outside of the eyes of, of any camera if it's, is like a copying and pasting thing. And there are ways to protect against that. Yeah. I'm not sure that online proctoring is uh, the way that she discusses it is really an answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Lauren Daming for joining us. Really interesting conversation. We appreciate her taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>